0: Celebrating UNESCO's International Year of Indigenous Languages 2019 with the SOAS World Languages Institute.
1: Hi, this episode we'll be talking about sign languages. In the UK, British Sign Language is the most famously known and it's thought to have been established in the 18th century. However, there are many other sign languages in use throughout the country, and at least 200 systems around the world. They're often marginalised, and there's many myths associated with sign languages, some of which we're going to look at today. My name's Saskia, and although I don't use a sign language, I became interested in BSL this year through my linguistics degree. In an effort to find out more about the range of systems around the world, I spoke to Bensi Wall and Diane Stoyanov, who are both researchers studying sign languages. Diane is a PhD student documenting an endangered sign language in Brazil. Bensi is the head of DECAL, UCL's research facility into deafness. Sign language linguistics is a young discipline, and there is still a lot that isn't known. This podcast will discuss sign language linguistics, considering the history and range of systems that have been studied around the world. Let's begin by asking, what is a sign language? I gesture while I speak, and I can even communicate using only gesture say, by giving a thumbs up across a noisy room or waving hi to someone. So what is it that makes sign language different? This is what Bensi has to say.
2: All natural human languages are, of course, the product of human brains. So in many respects, sign languages and spoken languages, despite the fact they're used in different uh, channels for communication, there's some really striking similarities in terms of the presence of phonology and morphology and syntax and all the things you expect languages to have. Well, of course, some people think that sign languages are just some sorts of gestures. And of course, they're gestural in the sense that they're using elements of the face and hands to communicate. But of course, And, of course, signers use gestures, too. They don't only use signs, just like hearing people use gestures and facial expressions and tone of voice. So, I mean, all languages use a complexity of channels and articulators. But unlike gestures, uh, signs and sign language structure is rule-governed. So there are grammatical and ungrammatical ways to sign there there isn't a concept of an ungrammatical gesture
1: so the thing that makes spoken languages different from a bunch of incoherent noises is the rules that govern it the grammar that provides sense to the hearer and the speaker and that's the same for signed languages too now that we understand what sign languages are i'd like to explore what type of languages exist british sign language is a national sign language and is used by most deaf people in the uk but do all countries have a national sign language If they do, who has access to it? The answer is that it varies, and this leads to a variety in the types of languages that are found. Here's Diane again, discussing systems that are referred to variously as rural sign languages, village sign languages, or emerging sign languages.
0: I tend to use the term emerging sign language for what I work on because it kind of spotlights the youth of the languages, which is very relevant to what I look at. But generally, all of these terms kind of refer to local sign languages that emerge generally because of quite a high rate of um, congenital deafness. Um, rates can be, you know, around 10 times uh, the global average and a lot of different social, cultural economic, geographical, and so on factors determine um, the transmission and stability of these kinds of languages. Um, And one big difference between these and some of the majority or national sign languages that you mentioned is of user demographic. So these sign languages are often used by a much higher percent of hearing people. The language is uh, much more kind of shared uh, between deaf and hearing signers. Um, There's a kind of maybe a higher amount of integration Um, linguistically, socially, between hearing and deaf people um, and hearing deaf signers, uh, both because of the kind of close community ties in in these kind of communities, perhaps big extended families, and of course the relatively greater amount of deaf people.
1: So these are languages that have a higher proportion of hearing signers than other sign languages might. They often exist in small, close-knit communities where both hearing and deaf people are fully integrated into one community. However, their existence tends to be short-lived, as rates of deafness fluctuate. An example of this is Martha's Vineyard Sign Language, which was used from the 18th century right through until the 1950s, and at various points the rates of deafness were described as 1 in 155, 1 in 25, or even 1 in every 4 people across different towns on the island. Another type of sign language is called home sign, in which the language is much more localised to the home, and may be between deaf and hearing members of the same family. Here's Diane again there's
0: also uh, what's called home sign. So this is generally when a deaf child is born to hearing parents and the child or children um, have no exposure to a sign language or a sign community. So a sort of gestural communication system develops. Um, And these are kind of, these are distinct from what we would understand as kind of communal gestures in that they tend to have some kind of structure um, in that actual simple sentences can be made, but they also tend to lack the consistency of established sign languages in the sense that um, signs are often not consistent between users. um, And also the sign itself for maybe one given concept or action or object is not consistent. So there's kind of inter-signer and intra-signer variation.
1: These aren't the only kinds of sign languages in the world, but they, along with national sign languages, are the main kinds of sign languages developing from deafness. What about linguistic features in sign languages? Sure, they're rule-bound, just like spoken languages. These might be syntactic, referring to the sentence structure, or they might be semantic, as in what a sign can refer to. It's meaning.
0: Non-manual markers are considered to be any, kind of, any configuration of a head movement, a mouth shape, a facial expression, body position, eye gaze, or really any combination uh, of any of those. And obviously, speakers of, of spoken languages use affective or emotive gestures, facial expressions, body movements uh, also. But these are different. They function differently. So the difference in these non-manual markers uh, when they are actually a kind of uh, systematized part of the language is that they have abrupt Beginnings and ends that are specifically aligned with certain constituents. So this is unlike effective expressions or gestures in spoken language, right? So if I want to raise my eyebrows to convey surprise or do this kind of double open palm spread fingers gesture that we like to do to convey the same thing, I can do them both throughout the whole story I'm telling or just over one sentence or half a sentence or just a word. It really doesn't matter. Um... So for example, in in sign languages, a head movement can convey negation, um, but this has language-specific rules for its scope, right? So what it has to occur with as you're signing.
1: So if I want to show surprise while I'm speaking, I might raise my eyebrows over the whole sentence or just on particular words. It doesn't make a difference. But if I want to use puff cheeks as an intensifier of largeness, for instance, this has an onset and an offset which will be linked to that part of the phrase.
0: And there's some interesting pragmatic features that work similarly in both spoken and signed languages in a floor holding and turn taking. Um, So a lot of this revolves around eye gaze in sign languages. Signers might retain eye gaze with a recipient uh, and put their hands in a resting position to show that they're ready for the other person's response. Or alternatively, if they don't want to do that, to look away to show that they're not done with their turn. In the same way that speakers might use a filler word or sound, you know, saying um or ah, while we're thinking to show that we're not done talking. And the same logic applies, right? Your signing recipient knows that they can't begin their turn if you're not looking. In the same way that if you're filling, you know, the metaphorical sound space with words, you can hopefully, politely express, uh, hold your horses, I'm, I'm not done here.
1: In speech, we use aspects of intonation, melody, prosody. And as Diane says, just filling the air with noise to signal these turn-taking behaviours. But in sign languages, they have other solutions. But languages also have elements smaller than the word. The sounds that are put together to form words are rule-bound, and parts of words might have specific meanings, from the un in uncover to the association of light with words beginning with gl, glimmer, gleam, gloaming. Do sign languages show these features too? How does that work in a language with no speech?
0: Just like spoken languages have inventories of sounds, which are put together to make words, sign languages have inventories of handshapes, which combine with other phonological domains of location and movement to form lexical items. So, a handshape on its own is not a sign, which is to say, it's not a word. You combine a handshape with a location and a movement, and then you have a sign. The difference in just one of these forms minimal pairs. So, this is the same in spoken language how a difference in, let's say, manner of articulation. um, So between pat and mat um, will result in a change in meaning or uh, a change in place of articulation in pat and pack. This will form a minimal pair in spoken languages. So this is the same in sign languages. So a single difference in either place or movement or location or palm orientation or mouthing, as we saw, can form minimal pairs. This is generally seen in established sign languages once the organization of these features has become uh, systematic, which means there there has evolved a a kind of definable, correct and incorrect way to produce a sign. So you don't always see this in uh, in the data from uh, younger emerging sign languages because the phonological features haven't become... Conventionalized and systematic enough to form things like minimal pairs yet.
1: So, just as a spoken word can be broken down into smaller meaningful units and then into sounds, so can a meaningful sign be broken down into its parts. Finally, we come to iconicity. This is the relationship of relatedness between a word and its real-life counterpart. The easiest examples in English are onomatopoeia, in which a noise is described by a word which reflects its character, like bang or snap or pop or the words which we use to describe animal noises, meow or woof. It would seem to make sense that sign languages are more iconic. After all, if I want to sign that I'm riding a bike, why not show this with my body?
0: Of course, sign languages in general are more iconic than spoken languages. Specifically, younger sign languages tend to be more iconic than more established sign languages. And the idea here is that signers are aiming for a more holistic or sort of visually representative form. Um, in the absence of having maybe a conventionalized sign for an object or a concept or an action. Um, and obviously not having a conventionalized sign is a more frequent problem uh, in a younger a younger language. So it's often said, not without reason, but that, that uh, sign languages are more iconic than spoken languages, right? meaning that there's a non-arbitrary relation between form and meaning. So let's take BSL's EAT, Right, it looks a lot like you'd expect it to, even if you've never seen it before. Um, and we might expect this to be somewhat similar in unrelated sign languages. I mean, I don't know this, but I would, I would hazard that it's a fairly, it's a fairly safe bet. It's going to involve something going towards the mouth, some kind of handshape going towards the mouth. But the English word "eat" has no essential relation to the concept. I was at a really interesting talk uh, recently by Marcus Perlman at, the, at DECAL as well. Um, comparing the potential for iconicity in signed and spoken language. And if I'm remembering this correctly, he and his team had participants invent what he called vocal charades or iconic sounds for verbs, adjectives, determiners, and so on. And he had other other people test comprehension by giving them a bank of, of the words, uh, that were given to the people to invent these vocal charades. He gave other people this bank of words and uh, measured their ability you know, to see whether they could work out what each vocal charade meant. So sign languages overall scored better in Iconicity uh, across sign languages, but he breaks down the scores in lots of detail of you know, semantic field, word category, by language. I won't go into them here, but it's, it's really interesting. And there is some interesting discussion of why this might be, by the way. Something I'm considering in my work is, is a debate around a concept called the duality of patterning. And this was proposed in the 1960s as one of the integral features of human language. So duality of patterning uh, means that there's there's two, well, there's more than two, but for our purposes now, let's let's say two. There's two levels of structure in words: a meaningless one and a meaningful one. Smaller, meaningless units, like k, a te. Combined to form meaningful ones, like cat. This is proposed to only emerge in language when the holistic or iconic signal set becomes too large to be functional. And this obviously happens fairly quickly for spoken languages, right? We can see that in uh, some of the the vocal charades were not super successful. Um, But the increased propensity for iconicity in sign languages might mean that this signal set can become much larger before this happens. So this kind of touches on the ability of sign languages to convey simultaneous information because more visual channels, if you want to call them that, are available to you at any one time. So intensifiers are often conveyed simultaneously. So largeness with puffed cheeks, smallness with kind of sucked in cheeks um, will be used at the same time as as a manual sign to intensify them or kind of convey some extra information. Um, but again, these have onsets and offsets that are tied to a specific part of the phrase. Um, the emotional manner or the speed of a verb can be modified with facial expressions or, or the kind of uh, manual quality of the sign. Um, it can be done with manual signs too, so you can use the sign fast or tired Um, But it's also possible to to actually codify this in the language without using manual signs.
1: So sign languages are more iconic, but more so in younger years. And the reason may be due to the different and simultaneous channels available in sign than in speech. But little is known of the origins of human language. And the sign languages around today are much, much younger than the spoken languages around them. If this is a feature of emerging sign languages, who's to say that this is specific to sign and not to speech? Given the youth of languages, what do we know about the major sign languages today? Benzie has done research into the history of BSL, the national sign language in the UK, of which there is surprisingly little history given the mass of written literature on English.
2: The earliest records of describing signing in Britain, uh, the, the first one is from 1576, and it's a marriage register where a deaf man married, and because he didn't speak they wrote down the signs he used in the marriage register. So you get descriptions of signs, you know, how how he signed, uh, till death us do part, that kind of thing. And they actually described the signs he used, you know, that for um, death he describes digging movements and, and putting someone in a grave and so on. Anyway. Um, And you also, in the following century, in the 17th century, there was a lot of interest in signing because people were interested in this idea of the natural human, the blank slate. What would they produce if they didn't get exposed to language? So you get a lot of discussion in the Royal Society and so on. And there are a couple of books in which signing is described and things about sign language are described. But of course, at that time... The only people who signed were, I mean, there were a there were few because you had to be really in contact with other people who communicated with you to really develop a sign language. So in deaf families, there was some signing, but it was really the development of schools for the deaf that accelerated the development Of sign languages, and this is true for many countries. The first school was established in 1760, so what probably happened is that the children who came from families where there was signing arrived, and they mixed with children who came from families where there were no deaf people, but they got agreed gestures, and then there were some other children who came, and together that's how British Sign Language developed.
1: So this might be why sign languages are so much younger, because users are often isolated or segregated from the wider deaf community. Although a family or village might form a sort of community for a while, even over a few generations, until a much wider community comes together, the likelihood of continuity of language over more than two or three generations is extremely low.
2: In the UK, the first school was established in Edinburgh in 1760. It was actually the same year that the first school for the deaf was established in France. So it was the kind of thing of the times. and, and over the the end of through the end of the nineteenth of the eighteenth century and the beginning of the nineteenth century, there were many schools were established in Britain and other countries. Um, and of course, teachers were very often former pupils. they were deaf teachers. They would go to other new schools, and so British sign language began to spread around the country very rapidly.
1: Most recently, the same process has happened in Nicaragua, where the first deaf school was established in the 80s. With each new year of students, systems of home sign, family sign languages, came together to form an established language within only a few years.
2: So from the 17th century, you begin to get drawings of signs Mm -hmm. and you can see a very strong relationship between the form of signs in in the 1600s and modern signs and throughout the 18th and 19th century, you get lots of little books of sign, booklets with signs, and so you can see what form signs had. You can also see very systematic phonological change. So the way signs were articulated 150 years ago, you can see really quite general processes of change occurring compared to modern signs. Mm. So we, we have reasonable records. We also have some records Obviously, people don't write sign language, but you do get, in the early 19th century, you begin to get um, sentences glossed in English words, but representing BSL grammar. So you have an idea that the structure of sign language back in the 19th century, the syntax was quite similar to what it is now.
1: Just as English sounds and even structure have changed over the years in a systematised way, The same thing can be seen in sign languages. Signs might be articulated lower on the body, or a two-handed sign might become a one-handed sign. But most significantly, the changes are systematic, they form a pattern, and the language is a development of the one that formed in the 18th century. But these changes are, as communities diverge, what lead to many related but different languages, just like English, German and Dutch, or the Romance languages. If the deaf community has historically been isolated, Can the same relationships be seen?
2: Well, they can be transmitted through education or just through migration of people which may or may not be associated with education. So British Sign Language is very close. There's a family of of sign languages uh, in the British Sign Language family which include Australian and New Zealand sign languages, um, Maltese Sign Language, and are now nearly dead language in Canada called maritime sign language. Um, and in Australia, it was the migration of deaf people, not of educators, which, so there were deaf people transported um, and some deaf people came as free settlers. Um, in Malta, Deaf children were sent to school in Britain. There was no school, so they brought back British Sign Language. So there are different routes for it, but you know, there are a few sign languages. The biggest family are sign languages related to French Sign Language, and that's through educators, basically. American Sign Language was very heavily influenced by uh, French Sign Language, but of course we don't know what American deaf people were doing before the French teachers arrived. So it, and, and it's possible that, you know, American Sign Language, just as I said, in Britain when schools open, some sign languages, some sign language came from families and some came from somewhere else. So it's possible that American Sign Language has some influence of, of some older British Sign Language before French Sign Language arrived, but we don't have any clear records about it. It certainly does appear to be in the French sign language family.
1: So there are language families, but they are fewer and further between than spoken language families. Of course, today there's often access to the internet, even in some rural communities. So it's entirely possible that those patterns of influence will change in the next few decades. As Bensi discussed, we know the history of BSL from the establishment of schools, but not very much about the structure or the patterns of it as an emerging language. What do we know about emerging languages now?
0: So the short and boring answer is essentially it depends, which I know is a bit unsatisfying. Um, but generally, yeah, they they tend to have a a, a shorter lifespan than um, than spoken languages, even minority spoken languages. Um, I guess primarily because they're in this precarious position where they they very much depend on continued deafness, right? If there uh, arise in populations where Congenital deafness is higher than the the global average. This is kind of their their reason of being, and if that's to go away, then we can expect the uh, the effects. Um, I know that a couple of well known. I know the age of a couple of well known um, kind of emerging or village. Sign languages, not sure you can call them emerging anymore. Maybe because I think that term refers to uh, languages that have arisen in the past two or three generations. I know that uh, Al Sayed Bedouin sign language, uh, which is very well documented um, by people like Wendy Sandler, that's in its fourth generation of signers, I believe now. And uh, Katakolok in Bali, um, I think it's I think it's thought to have been around for at least seven generations. Um, But even so, this is kind of a comparatively short amount of time.
1: Now that it's possible to observe emerging sign languages and to understand the social situation in which they arise, is it also possible to see linguistic differences between emerging and established sign languages?
0: Are there any? So some of the things that have been observed is a larger signing space um, or use of locations outside the normal signing space, which is kind of from the head or the top of the head to about the waist, um, usually with the arms bent at some angle and not fully extended. In the data that I looked at in the language from Brazil, signers would use uh, locations below the waist on the legs, for example. And in a couple of, uh, couple of situations, there was a signer signing something uh, behind his back, which I thought was uh, quite interesting. You also see a lot more marked or kind of difficult hand shapes um, and a violation of some phonological constraints. So this would be um, the two hands moving independently in a different way with a different shape on each hand. We wouldn't expect to see that in more established sign languages. More generally, I think, um, research on emerging sign languages has kind of shown us that what once was maybe assumed to be quote-unquote universal may not be so universal so there are lots of examples of this um one I thought was interesting was this kind of uh stage-like signing space where signers place objects so in kind of majority or established national sign languages um the signing space kind of functions as as a stage of sorts where you can set up objects or people um, in relation to one another. So if I was going to describe to you how my bedroom at home looks, I can trace out the, the size or the shape of the room and I can place objects within it in front of me. Um, and there are a couple of uh, well-known emerging sign languages, um, particularly one in Ghana that I'm thinking of that didn't show any of this and kind of only had a, a more character view.
1: So, be wary of generalizations. Some people have made comparisons with pigeons and creoles, languages which are in their infancy and formed of two languages in high contact, which have often, often controversially, been argued to have features in common purely on the basis of how they came into being. But with only a tiny percentage of sign languages documented, it's impossible to make generalizations on that scale. To return to the more sociolinguistic aspect of sign languages, what about the environment in which they exist? Like many minority languages, they exist in the context of a larger, usually spoken language. But in these cases, it's a language which the users of the sign language may have only limited or no access to.
2: Well, British sign language is used as a minority language in a community where the dominant language is English. And all deaf children, all signers, know English to a greater or lesser extent because that's the language of the dominant culture. So for some signers, access to English is via written forms, and for others, it can be through spoken forms as well. So there is uh, the possibility of borrowing uh, signs from words of English, and that can occur in two ways. You can have calcs, loan translations, or you can use uh, a system that exists to represent English orthography manually, which is the manual alphabet or fingerspelling. So you can fingerspell foreign, I mean by that English, words. Um, So that's not sign language, but it's used in association with sign language. And there are some fingerspelled forms which over time have been borrowed and adapted to match the phonology of British Sign Language, and they've become signs. So they no longer are foreign words, they've become part of the language.
1: So in that way, you do see a, a little bit of influence between uh, spoken English and British Sign Language, but they do exist as a separate entity. Oh yes, anyway. just
2: like between any mm. communities where there's a minority language in use, mm-hmm. you know, so you know, Welsh borrows some words from English, but not, that doesn't mean Welsh is related to English, um, there's almost no examples, of course, going the other direction between from a non- majority language, from a minority language to a majority language. The only word I can think of in English that's been borrowed, it's a loan translation from British Sign Language, is hearing, meaning a person who can hear.
0: So mouthing a word or part of a word or the first sound in a word is often a significant influence from the surrounding spoken language or languages. Mouthing appears in lots of BSL signs as an influence from English, and sometimes this forms minimal pairs. So the sign for Finland and metal uh, are both produced with a curved index finger tapping a couple of times on the chin, and it's just the mouthing of those words, so the F and the M are quite kind of visually salient.
1: And in village sign languages, where the hearing community also use the sign language, there is often a higher degree of fingerspelling or mouthing as part of the phonology. So really, across the mediums, the influence is very similar to in spoken situations. The majority language influences the minority language, but not the other way around. What about parts of the language that deaf and hard of hearing people do have access to?
0: So something else I'm really interested in is the influence of a gesture used in the surrounding hearing community on the inventory of sign languages. So in BSL... Uh, head movements or sort of more word like gestures like okay thumbs up uh, the sign for money are all kind of recognizable for the from the surrounding hearing culture um so sometimes these will become lexicalized so turned into words uh the thumbs up is bsl for for good so this isn't just the case for kind of majority national sign languages you also see these in uh, in younger emerging sign languages as well um And this is interesting, this propensity for gesture to sometimes be an input for sign vocabulary. Um, So sometimes gestures are imported wholesale as signs with a similar meaning. So like the example in BSL, but sometimes they become kind of grammatical, too. There was an interesting case. I think you and I discussed this before um, with a young emerging indigenous sign language in, in Mexico. And in the hearing community, there's a gesture meaning come or bring, uh, much like the gesture we'd use here in the UK, but with the palm facing downwards instead. Um, so this is used in, in the incipient sign language for the same meaning, um, but it's also begun to be used at a much higher rate as a, as a turn-taking kind of pragmatic particle to signify, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something. And um, this is used both to attract attention Uh, to initiate conversation, but also when a signer already has the visual attention of the recipient. So it's kind of taken on a new pragmatic or maybe even one day prosodic function. And similarly, eye movements for yes and no from Inuit culture have been observed in uh, Inuit sign language. And I always think of this example from uh, Greek and Turkish sign languages. They both use a backwards head tilt for, for negation because Contrary to a lot of other cultures, I guess, this is a popular gesture in that area of the world um, for negation.
1: And what about sign languages which aren't related to deafness? It may not surprise people to learn that these exist too, although they're understandably different to sign languages arising from deafness, and they may only exist in a restricted form for use in particular situations or only to refer to specific topics. Sign languages are incredibly complex languages, which are difficult to learn well without always seeming like a little bit of a foreigner. Whether we know it or not, wherever we are in the world, sign languages exist alongside us. Hopefully, this podcast has given a glimpse into the depth and breadth of variety within sign languages, and how much there still is to learn.
0: This podcast was recorded at SAAS Radio. Our music is Yellow Light District by Lobo Loco. You can find a link to their music in the show notes. This podcast forms part of a series of four podcasts produced by the SAAS World Languages Institute, celebrating UNESCO's International Year of Indigenous Languages 2019. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to listen to the other
1: three episodes as well.